Welcome back to Arts About. Show about art that's a work of art in itself. Is this this week or last week? Uh, some week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is mid-January sometime. Right. Th- yeah. You lose time in summer, don't yeah, you? Yeah, we do. We do lose time. Amanda's yeah. mother, I remember, knew a couple of identical twins and she ran into one of them down the street and said to him, are you you or are you your brother? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody came up to Will once and said, didn't you used to be Will Bailey? <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Arts About, which is brought to you by the generosity of McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery. And you're here in the Artable Peace Studios with us, artist-in-residence and cultural sounding board John Baird, the thermodynamic Mark Stewart and me, as always, Sally Bailey. Although, as I... Uh, like it has been for the last couple of weeks, you've got our avatars. We're still on our summertime series in which we play some of the stories and interviews that we think deserve a replay while we're out there enjoying the summer. Hmm. I just want to uh, like quote my mother who said uh, she's got a little bit of dementia. She said, I'm losing the plot, but there's not a lot of, not, not a lot of plot left to lose. Oh, <laughs> that's so sad. <laughs> been enjoying yourself, John? Yes. Still working? Well, yeah, still yeah. working. More enthusiasm. And enjoying myself. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, that's what yeah. we want to hear. Um, this week on the program, we're going to be listening to Janet and Graham Webb talking about their incredible home in Wallagrang in New South Wales and the Rumsford fireplace that's within it. Will and Gabe, Dr. Gabe discussing gay icons, and hold on to your hats for that one. Also, filmmaker and Englishman John Dollar and an amazing, astonishing story of art forgery that Will Bailey uncovered that's going to particularly interest you, John. Oh, it always does. Love a bit of forgery. So, what's a Rochford? What was it called? Uh, the Rumsford Fireplace. Rumsford Fireplace. Yes. You'll have to listen, Mark. Yes, it's a very interesting... Oh, it's a... It's a, a... The dimensions of this particular fireplace are really, really... Uh, efficient and wonderful and it's just a beautiful fireplace okay and it's in their incredible home they live in this very very old home uh, in on a sheep station out in new south wales near goulburn anyway enjoy the show i'm here representing the arts about team again this time a little different where well it's probably not different for me because i'm always traveling in the, uh, the combi van this time i'm up in the new south wales Southern Tablelands it is, and I've caught up with some old friends here on a magnificent rural property. It's it's a historic estate up here in the Southern Tablelands in New South Wales. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Will. And good morning, Graham. Good morning. And Sally, of course, is here with me, but she's taking a back seat today, I think. But <laughs> yes, she may I, uh, she may pop I'm in at some stage. Pressing the buttons here. She's my sound tech. Tell us a little bit about this property. It's very, very old, the the house that we're in now. This property was started originally by someone called Campbell, who built a four-bedroom house with a shingle roof facing basically south, and he first took up the land ground. And by 1830, it had been bought by a man called Captain Henry Edenborough, who was actually an English sea captain that came out here and then decided to stay and make his fortune. So when he arrived here, he um, he decided to build a proper house for his growing family and his elegant wife. And so they built a very, what has been described as... Pretentious. Pretentious, but eccentric, elegant... <laughs> Colonial, Colonial uh, homestead. What, what year are we talking when this was? Probably about was 1835. 1835, and of yeah. course the first fleet arrived only about 40 years before that. So yeah. 
This is really, really early architecture. We're sitting in front of a beautiful fire because it's a freezing cold afternoon, having a cup of tea. What else is Well, the fireplace in itself is interesting, Will, because it's oh, yes, built by someone that. called Count Rumford, even though it was built by us. We actually needed to build an outside fireplace that didn't smoke and provided warmth most efficiently because it was basically outside. It's on a back veranda. And so we were in touch with someone who said we should build a Rumford fireplace. And having never heard of a Rumford fireplace... We did we our homework and we came up with all the designs and everything which are on the internet. And S.B. Dodds, who's an architect who practices in Sydney, or he used to, I think he might have retired, he was a great uh, believer in these Rumford fireplaces and used to put them in all the houses he designed, uh, if they were to having fireplaces, that is. And they are incredibly efficient, and I, I believe he won a competition. He was born in America, in, in um, Woburn, I think it was called. In Massachusetts, yeah. anyway, in 17-something. But he was very sort of loyalist to the British. So when they left, he went with them and after the War of Independence and he set up, funnily enough, in Bavaria where he worked on heat. His main sort of emphasis in life was heat. He was very concerned about its use and its conservation and all the kind of applications that a heat would have been necessary in very cold and, and damp he was, houses of the time. He was a scientist. Time. Well, the Rumford fireplace is throwing out a beautiful heat. It's filling this whole end of the building. So what is so special about this fireplace? It looks quite shallow at first glance. Well, the thing about Rumford is he made these fireplaces and they were shallow and they were smaller, but they were widely angled so they'd radiate better heat. He streamlined the throat and rounded off the breast and he made them tall and elegant. And so what happened is when he went back to England, he actually, um, his fireplace was adopted because there was a huge Georgian building boom in England from the sort of 1750s on and a lot of London was built at that time. So a lot of those houses contained Rumford fireplaces which were not only tall and elegant but incredibly efficient to heat those rooms which Georgian architecture put in a lot of big windows and a lot of light. So a lot of big windows meant a lot of colder air, therefore need more heat to warm the room. But they went into Monticello. Jefferson used them back in, um, back in America and uh, all over the world. They were... Uh, the state of the art. They were the state of the art and also they were efficient. It's an interesting thing because they reflect more heat because of their streamlined throats supposedly eliminates turbulence and then the air is sucked up quicker. And also you get less loss of heated air room when you don't have a great big fireplace where the heat travels up the fireplace. So yeah. it's radiant heat before well, the it's a, air Well, it's the back plate is curved. Hmm. It's quite an efficient thing. It's a great connection with history. Well, the other thing is they became state-of-the-art worldwide, as Janet said, and so, you know, there are a lot of new ones, and I think what happens is people now have come to the conclusion that he built a bloody good fireplace, and while you find them still in very old houses, you find them in new houses too. Now, um, often on this show I've talked about street art and graffiti and you have some of your own graffiti just near here. We're sitting in front of the fire and I can see this wall that's been written on by, it looks like hundreds or even thousands of comments and signatures. 
Tell us a little of the history of that wall and do you know some of the people that have visited and stayed Well, there? Will, you, yourself and your brother are both <laughs> old guests who stay longer than one night are actually allowed to write on our version of the wall, but on the historic version of the wall, we have guests from the 1840s up to about 1960. Most of those are people who visited Canberra because this house was on the way to Canberra and when it was built, there was no Federal Highway and there was no Canberra. There was only the Great Southern Road, which is, became the Hume Highway, obviously. But when they built this house, they created a big federal highway and so people who had to go to Canberra came via here and so we got visitors like Nellie Melba who sang at the... I can see yeah. her signature up there right exactly. there on a slide. She was here in 1915. 1915 and mm. kings and queens and prime ministers and... Lady Denman who named Canberra, she was here and we recently had her grandson's wife, widow, staying with us because she was in Canberra for the... Centenary of the mm. naming of Canberra by Lady Denman. Yes, and Rajas and various other people up there. But well, it's no, no, no Rajas no that I know of, but one of the original um, people who lived here married one of the Romanovs. Yes, Sheila. And so there's an original... Um, Her name was Sheila. The one that got away. Well, she got away. She went to England for the, she went the to First England, World War. The first World War. She didn't go to England. She actually went to Palestine, uh, Egypt, and, uh, with her aunt, I think it was her great aunt, who started a canteen for the Australian soldiers over there. And so she went to help. And the aunt's name was Dame Alice Chisholm. And she was quite a, an amazing old girl because she set up this canteen for the boys where I think they could get a cup of tea and a cake for a penny or something. Well, because a lot of her relatives were oh, over there they're fighting. They are all over there fighting. Mm. They're all in the light horse, funnily enough. Sheila, did she call herself Sheila Romanoff? She did in the, her final years. She had many marriages. Her first was to Lord Loughborough, uh, who became the Earl of Rosslyn, and her son is a detective with Scotland Yard, or was. Maybe he's retired too by now. And then she married another Englishman, Milbank, and she became Lady Milbank. And her final husband was one of the Romanovs. But wow. when she visited here, her family had a lot of properties. This was one of them, but there were quite a few others. And one of them was up north of Braidwood. And we had a series of photographs from that period where she visited with her husband's friend, who was um, Yusupov. No, no, Oblensky. Oblensky. And they were, they were all sitting out there. <laughs> all these Russians who'd had to flee the revolution were all sitting in this faraway, extraordinary place. A lot of people you know, reckon I'm Yusupov. Out of Braidwood in the middle of nowhere. Well, Yusupov was famous because he killed Rasputin. Wow. So this Well, he was one of the men who killed him. Oh, he was the main one. <laughs> the mad monk. Well, speaking of the profound thread... I guess it's not really one of our profound thread, but... The link between Karl Marx and this place is you know, <laughs> tenuous, to say the least. But we can hang a thread on that. Well, we could hang right? a thread because, you know, the revolution <laughs> provided the them with the excuse to flee and the Romanovs and Yusupovs and Oblenskys and whoever else all ended up in might have visited with, here. With, Certainly, probably did. With Lady Denman and Dame Nellie Melba on the same night. It is remarkable and uh, there is a distant, if somewhat tenuous, link between this property and Adolf Hitler. Graham, can you explain how that works? Well, it worked very circuitously, I'm afraid, Well, 
The series of paintings here, the two on either side of the fireplace. I can see them as, as I'm looking now. There. Well, they are the Four Seasons, and they were painted specifically for Cecil Beaton. And the artist was a man called Sir Francis Rose, who was quite a famous figure in London in the early part of this century. And he was eccentric because he was bisexual. Last century. Uh, last century. Last century, actually, yeah. 1920s was his sort of boom time. Anyway, one of the things he did was he had an affair with Ernst Rome. Now, Ernst Rome, as you may or may not know, was the head of the brown shirts and killed by Hitler in the Night of the Long Knives. So the there is your connection. Oh. He was the guy with no neck and a <laughs> dueling scar across his face. Yes. He, he disappeared in that night when, when Hitler rose to power. Well, you know, they say, for every, they say for every stale biscuit there's a mouldy piece of cheese, so they found each other. Or tea, anyone? It's lovely to catch up. Thanks very much for having us in the house. We better go back to you in the studio, I think. Good morning, Gabe. Nice to see you again. It's been a fair while. Thanks for inviting me in here to headquarters. Here at the National Gallery of Victoria, it's lovely to have you here, Will, to have a look at some images and discuss the forthcoming exhibition, Italian Masterpieces from Spain's Royal Court, Museo del Prado. Well, there's a huge amount of action going on in here, so I assume they are hanging this exhibition now as we speak. Indeed, and uh, we're going to hear some noise, I suggest, so forgive us, dear listeners, if you hear some tradesmen toing and froing as we're bumping in the exhibition. There's a lot of uh, gallery staff hovering around these guys with their drills and hammers as well, I guess, to make sure nothing gets broken. So where do you want to start? What are we looking at? I thought I'd show you an image from the exhibition by way of perhaps building some expectation of what people are to expect when they go to the NGV for this exhibition. The picture that I've chosen to have a chat with you about is by Guido Reni, and it's a picture of St. Sebastian. Yes, well, I've got a lovely reproduction of it here, and they're about to hang this now, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So tell us a little bit about St. Sebastian. Who was he? He was an officer in the Roman army during Diocletian. Cletian's third century persecution of the Christians and of course Saint Sebastian decided that Christianity was something he wanted to convert to and that sealed his fate I'm afraid. He was sentenced to be bound and killed by the arrows of his fellow soldiers. He miraculously survives this of course and returns to confront Diocletian but he was recaptured and of course in inevitably met his maker by being stoned to death. So funnily enough Saint Sebastian became a patron saint of soldiers because he was seen as an image to help soldiers ward off the plague because he was associated with the resilience that saved him from his first death sentence and therefore soldiers would pray and invoke St Sebastian for protection. So he was a kind of icon but I believe he's an icon in other ways as well. Oh yeah baby and this period of art is that turning point where St Sebastian goes from being rendered as a brawny bearded bloke and in the Renaissance we see his image start to soften and his portrayals in art are transition from this bearded soldier through to a, what you'd have to say is a fairly effeminate young man. Yes, well in this particular painting he's he's very pale, he's, he's bound to a tree, he's got an arrow in his guts and a fairly loose fitting loincloth that looks like it's about to drop off. So <laughs> Yeah, that's right. They're, always look for the loincloth on Saint Sebastian because it's always positioned in such a way as to promote the phallus underneath and the other interesting thing about the way Saint Sebastian is portrayed in Western art is that you see him in a sort of 
ecstasy slash torturous pose, which is part of the first time that he was persecuted with the arrows. You don't see his eventual stoning to death. And so what you see in the Renaissance is this ideal of male beauty emerging where it's all white flesh and thinly veiled eros. Is it doing it for you? Oh yeah, definitely does it. And I've got tradesmen all around us here and we've got tradesmen at home and I've run this past them and they've agreed. <laughs> yes, he's... Uh, these yeah. are your typical Australian tradesmen. They see, they see it. They feel it. <laughs> they see it and feel it. And so what we'll put up on the Arts About Facebook page is some images from the Renaissance and the High Renaissance through to Mannerists showing images of St. Sebastian, some by, as I said, Guido Reni, but also Matteo Preti, Dosso Dossi, Perugino, all very keen of depicting St. Sebastian in this state of being shackled mm. and slightly ecstatic beauty even in torture. Molly's being shot full of arrows. Uh Gay icons itself is an interesting subject. It used to never be talked about, but I guess it is a lot more these days. And he's certainly become one of the classic gay icons, these pictures of St. Sebastian. Too right. There's a transition that sort of begins to emerge in the 1800s from just an image of male beauty to a direct homosexual icon. And there's a whole subtext in the Middle Ages and Renaissance and High Renaissance, as I've mentioned, that celebrating and exploiting this. And the idea of a reimagined coming out narrative that comes through. So uh, this homoerotic symbol tends to show great will and great weakness, Mm. uh, the masculine and the feminine all at once. So it was presupposed really that St. Sebastian would emerge to the present day as a gay icon. In fact, Oscar Wilde's pen name was Sebastian Melmos and his Dorian Gray wore a cloak with a medallion of St. Sebastian Mm. on it. So it was very much a, a known symbol during that period and Freudian analysts have reveled in the imagery of arrows and piercing flesh for some time and obviously there are connotations that fit into the gay icon genre. But it's not all about men is it? I mean can Saint Sebastian be a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, intersexual icon? (laughs) (laughs) Well I'm sure there's a few very interesting gay icons out there that appeal to many and I figured we would also put up on the website the Esquire magazine cover that was produced in 1968 of Muhammad Ali. Of course, that's a classic picture of Muhammad Ali in the very same pose with his hands apparently bound behind him in his boxing trunks and shot full of arrows. It's on the front cover of Esquire. And of course, that came out shortly after he was stripped of his world heavyweight boxing title for refusing to be drafted into the Vietnam War. Right. And look, these are all snapshots, whether it's Renaissance works we're showing or whether it's magazine covers. They're all just snapshots of a fascinating history, a thousand year narrative of tension between Eros and art, politics, religion, and the intersecting of tensions that emerge from the backstory of our Saint Sebastian. I suppose you'd be aware of a few other gay icons, though, in a modern-day context. Well, I did a little research, as you do on this subject, and some surprises have come out. And oh, I really? guess you have to realise that you don't have to be gay to be an icon. Uh-huh. You can be an icon that's admired by gay people, and those gay people can be lesbian or they can be males or... They can be bisexual or transsexual. So some interesting figures have come out. Would you believe Margaret Thatcher was a gay icon for both women and men? Oh, yeah, see, I I can sort of see that. I think that's a classic example of that intersection between the masculine and the feminine at once, don't you? I do. Pauline Hanson, the fish and chip shop owner and part-time politician, another gay icon. 
Holy crap. Mm. It is a lot of people from Hollywood in the movies and some of the classics, of course, which have been held up, much like St. Sebastian. Victor Mature oh. in the, uh, the Sandals and Toga movies. The Suffering Martyrs and the Gladiators, mm. hey? Charlton Heston. He would hate that because he believed himself to be a, a tough guy, you know, but he was a gay icon because he didn't really have the body. Neither did Victor Mature. They looked very vulnerable when they were in their togas. Well, that's exactly right. And that's that classic intersection between tenaciousness and ravaged fragility is what you're talking about Mm. here. These seem to be the common ingredients of gay icons. Yeah, and then there's Bette Midler, the singer in the 70s. She became a great gay icon, as currently our Kylie Minogue. Absolutely. Um, Triumph over adversity with breast cancer. That's it. Well, let's see. It makes an even stronger case. Some of the old-timers, of course, Marlena Dietrich, the German. Beautiful, even in torture. Beautiful, always foggy, all the pictures, the Vaseline on the lens, etc. <laughs> Could the, do with a bit she, of that right now. She had a man's voice in a woman's body. Just quite a strange character. And the interesting thing is the Nazis feature, the Second World War Nazi Germans feature heavily. I suspect it's because of the uniforms. Mm. Not much else to recommend them. But but they did have great uniforms, I guess. There are others and they don't all have to be, they don't all have to be humans either. Believe it or not, the big red car on the the wiggles. What? Is is a gay icon. Get real. Yeah. There are gay people out there that would love to own the big red car and often name their cars the big red car. Right. If they have a red car. because it's kind of an iconic thing. There's lots of partnerships on TV where there was an unsaid, unstated sexual tension Uh that was there looking back on it. Hopalong Cassidy, William Boyd, the actor with his white hair and his funny little sidekick, Windy Holiday, who was was Gabby Hayes. Well, that pair became gay icons, (laughs) and believe it or not. As was the Cisco Kid and Pancho and, and even the horse, Loco. <laughs> Pancho's horse, How? Loco, is held up. But there's some pretty unusual ones. The underwater city of Bikini Bottom. Have you ever heard of that? From SpongeBob SquarePants? SpongeBob SquarePants. It's a fantasy city. It's a gay fantasy and therefore SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> and some of his friends have become... Uh, contemporary gay icons. I wonder if that's why they always talk down there about crusty crabs. <laughs> well, quite possibly, <laughs> yeah. And of course, some of the great TV shows like Bonanza with those the three middle-aged men living at home with their father on a farm. And certainly Adam and Little Joe had a gay following. Hoss, Dan Blocker, who played Hoss, with the receding hairline, he, he just didn't have, he didn't cut it. So he was just a bloke. It is extraordinary how we can go from talking about Italian masterpieces from Spain's royal court through to SpongeBob SquarePants and beyond. Only with you, Will. Don't forget Noddy and Big Ears. <laughs> They're in there as well. And uh, our own Ian Thorpe, the swimmer. Who would have thought a swimmer? Ah, yes, there is a classic intersection of the physical with the spiritually ecstatic. But I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of this show. And the Guido Rennie picture of San Sebastian is magnificent. And we recommend that people come in and have a look. Gay icon or not, it might lead you on a path of discovery or you might just wish to wander around and look at the rest of the pictures. Mince around the rest of the exhibition. Absolutely. Thanks for coming in, Will. It's been great and I'm glad to be here while they're actually hanging the thing. Yeah, it's pretty noisy. It is noisy, but it's been great. So thanks for having me and hopefully we'll see you again soon. See you soon. Well, team, John Dollar is our visitor. 
today in the celebrated Bendigo Bank studios at RPP this morning and he's here from his native habitat of London because apart from being a pretty interesting fellow, he's had more outback adventures probably than many of us here in Australia have. Isn't that always the case, Sal? It is. <laughs> Foreigners are much better uh, travellers in our, in our fair That's land right. than we are. And John has made a couple of films about some of Australia's European settlements that have, apart from being instrumental chapters in our settlement, They've come to some extent to be seminal events that have played some part in forging our national character, I think. Mm -hmm. And the first of which is a film you made in the 80s called Bound for Botany Bay that's still used in schools. And the second film, which I thought we should ask him about today, is The Last Camel Train. And that's a lesser known story about the role that the Afghans played in opening up the interior of Australia with their camels. Mm. Welcome, John Dollar. Thank you very much, Sally. Hello, Governor. (laughs) <laughs> Hello, mate. <laughs> it's so good to talk to a native raw, fresh pom straight off the boat, isn't it? And uh, forgive me for a moment. Oh, morning, John. Well, good morning, John. He's politeness, man. So, John, let's just look at Botany Bay for a second. Now, yeah. I didn't know you did that, bound for Botany Bay. But one imagines that we always get it from our perspective, don't we? But you would have given it a very sort of embarkation point perspective as well, would you? Yeah, not? no, it's the story of the First Fleet. It's got nothing to do with oh. the First Settlement. That's actually the second chapter that we really ought to do but we we it's now 30 years since we did bound for botany bay so we haven't done the first settlement yet yeah the first fleet was bound for botany bay yeah Yeah. that's right arthur philip all that yep yep come on men i think a huge amount of our australian character is forged out of that it certainly is convict identity and all that i love that part of the story uh in all of that journey where the english were in botany bay and uh, the french arrived rather by surprise Mm. and the english in an effort to uh, secure their position there and get into a better situation rushed out of botany bay around to port jackson and pretty well mucked up the whole departure they broke a couple of boats and lost a couple of anchors in their desperation to to plant the flag Uh, absolutely because uh, because they'd gone to botany bay in the first place because of cook's description and cook had come at a time that had obviously been preceded by good rains and Botany Bay is so named because there was plenty of lush vegetation. First fleet got there and it was dry as a boat. Yeah, yeah. it was all gone. Yeah, all this sort of flowery, verdant language. There were, there were a lot of sort of swamps around there as well that he mistook for green fields from, from afar because he never actually put foot on Botany Bay, did he, Cook? He just looked at it and said, that's a nice place to settle. He came quite close in, right. I think, but you would know better than I Probably, probably not. (laughs) Well, lots of us do know quite a lot about that story, but the other story that I really wanted to talk to you about, that was about the the more recent film, The Last Camel Train, is about the Afghans and their role in opening up Central Australia. Yes. Well, uh, I I had been to Central Australia before and, you know, knew about the GAN Railway and why the GAN Railway was called the GAN Railway and stuff like that, but I didn't know much more than that. I'd say a lot of Australians would be the same, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, suddenly in the uh, geographical magazine, not the American National Geographic, but the British Geographical magazine, I saw this little tiny article announcing that uh, a group of Australians were going to commemorate the Afghan role in opening up uh, the interior of Australia by doing a camel trek. 
and I got in touch with uh, my old friend Jonathan King, who actually was the, the man who had inspired the first Fleet film. He's most famous here for having um, got together the uh, uh, reenactment of the first Fleet in, in 1987-1988. And also, might I say, great-great-great-grandson of Philip Gidley King. You may certainly <laughs> say that, and he would be grateful to hear it. Loves dressing up in 18th century kit. Well, uh, he, just, he just likes... Um, uh, anything to do with historical reenactment and, and, and sure enough he hadn't heard of this event and on my behalf was able to wangle uh, a ticket out of Qantas something which he's extremely good at and um, I came actually I came uh, I was set to come a fortnight before the trek set off but then the, the green light turned red and I didn't get another green light until 48 hours before before they were due to leave uh, whizzed out, was driven down to Udnadatta, where it was due to start from, got to Udnadatta in the dark, and there was absolutely nobody around. Udnadatta is a bit like that, John. No, no, <laughs> it, true. they were there, but, but you had to follow this faint noise of a shindig coming from a kind of shed meeting house. Once you opened the doors, absolutely everybody was in there. The entire town and Fidget all the members uh, dancing uh, to a rather good um, folk band. I'm sorry, but I've seen the film and they are not a rather good folk band. They <laughs> are. Can, can I just uh, stop you? So, so you'd, you'd secured a place on the actual trek. You were going to get your own camel and you had your crew and... You no, I had no crew. I, right. I, I had, I had a camera. I was it. Yes. Right. It was a one-man band operation. And um, w w although we did ride the camels from time to time, basically we didn't. The camels had a kind of set dressing on them. They, they had boxes and bales and, and right. which were empty. Yep. Uh, so simply to make them look like 19th century, the sort of things that the Afghans would have led. And we walked beside them. So it was more of a trek than a ride. Right. So you started out in this tin shed caravanserai and off you went. No, the following morning right. uh, things came to life and yep. uh, the camels, I hadn't seen the camels that night, but they, then they came the following morning. So it's rather than a re-trek, it's very much a reenactment. As, it, yeah, as yeah. you described it. If, I mean, if the luggage is, is empty and the camels aren't really sort of taking stuff and... Well, yes, but the, a, a reenactment might imply that we uh, were doing it in Afghan style, and and I didn't know what style we were going to do it in. You know, were we going to get to camp in the evening and boil up a handful of rice in a in a in a, in a tin and Ooh, sheep's heads, wash it down with water? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, they had a whole. A backup team there with booze. I think they had vehicles, didn't they? They did, yes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell the story of the Afghan? Yes, in a, nut, in in a, a nutshell. Yes. In a nutshell, yeah. Around about the 1870s, you know, after disasters like Burke and Wills and, and really difficult exploratory journeys into the interior by all sorts of well-known Australian explorers, it, it became generally realised that you just couldn't do this with horses and you couldn't do it with oxen beyond a certain point for hauling stuff and that really the only animal that was tough enough was the camel. So they looked around for a source and uh, through the British Army who were busy licking their wounds from I think by then the second Afghan war with the third one and not to mention the fourth one yet to come they uh, decided that they would bring camels in from Afghanistan Dromedaries. Afghanistan's unusual. Afghanistan, I think, the only country in the world where in the south there are 
single humped dromedary camels, but in the far north there are double humped Bactrian camels. Oh, I've got to put my hand up. Oh, you said the name, so so many people don't know that the double hump, hump camel is the Bactrian. Bactrian yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's Bactrian, a great quiz answer, yeah. There's a place in North Africa called Bactria. No, Bactria is a region oh. in the very north of Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. There you go. Oh, Swan. Bactria, oh. B-A-C-T-R-I-A. I did, finally. Oh. I did know, though. Yeah. Where were we? <laughs> I have that effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, they brought the first ones they brought in to by ship, but they, they couldn't bring just the camels. They had to bring some people who were used to dealing with camels, camel, camel ears, experts. So they brought a handful of Afghan guys, and they didn't allow any women. In fact, they didn't allow any women for quite a, a long time after that. Batch after batch of camels, small batches, but camels and Afghan cameleers were, came in. Adelaide, to start with, then some of them came in to Perth. There are wonderful photographs of camels mm -hmm. in slings on the end of cranes being unloaded in the dock. And then off they, off they went to be deployed beyond the railheads. And that's what Udna Data was. That's why the, the trek that's in the film began there. Later, in the 1930s, the railway was extended to Alice. And by then, they were building roads all over the place, too. And so the end of the story, in a nutshell, is that for 50 years, the Afghans, who I... I'm afraid to say we're not treated very well. They were treated very much as aliens. Well, as you say, it's so typically British. They didn't let the women in. They didn't want them to breed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of them took Afghan, uh, took um, Aboriginal wives, mm. and, uh, and did, as you put it, breed. Mm. But uh, <laughs> no, the end of the story, in a nutshell, is that they they were put out of business having shipped him and they they were shipped on these camels from the railhead to the Alice. mine sites and the outermost uh, cattle stations and small settlements they were shipping everything even corrugated iron rolls of corrugated iron by on camels not an easy job at all anyway around the years uh, following 1930 when their their business just went bust Instead of slaughtering the camels, or I don't know what you would otherwise have done with the camels, but they set them free. And that's why Australia has the far and away the world's largest population of wild camels, all descended Feral. from those, those yeah. camels. Absolutely. And there are, there's over a million of them, I think, out there. Mm. I've heard stories about camels being so desperate for water in central Australia that if they find a water supply that's tapped, uh, they can manage to rip a tap out of the ground and break the pipe and get the water out and it's a real problem for people who have water storage and well, absolutely camels can get at it well mm. they're violent the yeah, animals tough you know, but yeah, yeah they are they can break anything well there's a big big distinction now between uh, the camels that are used in camel tourism and the ones that we took on this trek were all uh, camel tourist camels so the males have been castrated uh, the, the the feral camels, the wild camels that are out there, the males are not castrated, and they are they grow much bigger, much stronger. They come into season violently. Some of them have their chests all scarred by having bulldozed through uh, barbed wire stock fences, 
and that's of course why the uh, cattle owners come out and shoot them. Yeah, they're impossible to contain, and they do this incredibly grotesque thing when they're with when they're showing when slobber and all. Well, that. with their slobber, but they also have a bladder down their throat, and the males, when they're in sort of rushing season, blow out this thing that looks like this stomach coming out of their mouths, and they slobber and slather, and they're just. They're hideous, aren't oh, you they? You should go down to the Royal Hotel sometime, Sally, on a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, that was some time ago now, the Afghan story. Yes. What have you been up to since and what do you continue to do? Well, I've just finished a little tiny film about, which, funny enough, has a very slight camel connection, about the late, great English explorer, traveller, writer, photographer, Wilfred Thesiger. Thesiger. Mm, so Arabian Sands. So Arabian Sands, mm, exactly. Wow. Yes. yes. I thought you were going to say Speak or Burton, someone really famous. I've not heard of Thesiger. Oh, he's pretty famous. Well, Thesiger oh. is now dead, but the others have been dead for a long time. Too long for me to interview them, yeah. Oh, I see. Sorry. But he's Arabian, recent. Arabian Sands is the most fantastic book. Yeah. Very <sighs> lean prose. Yes. It's a wonderful book. Well, I used to go and see him in the last years of his life. He's, he's been dead now for 10 years, 10 years this year. When he was 90, he died when he was 93. So he was getting very frail and he'd come back he didn't really want to leave Africa he, he'd been living for 16 years in um, a northwest territory it's called it's the top left-hand corner of Kenya but um, the, the people with whom he'd lived who he'd, he'd adopted and had grown up and he built them houses and stuff they all they both of them died from AIDS and he began to get a bit frail he uh, had Parkinson's disease his eyesight began to go he had to come back he never wanted to live in England, to a, a care home, uh, and I used to go and see him there. An ignominious end for yes, such an adventurous yes. fellow. He probably wanted to die with his boots on, I'd say. I think he did, but, you know, he never complained. That's the spirit, isn't it? Mm, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming in and telling us a little bit about all of those things. It's lovely to have you here, John. Yeah, great to meet you, John. Thanks. Great pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for that, John. Uh, good morning, everyone. Just for a change, I'm going to go to a very dark place today. This is the world of art forgery at the highest level. It's at a level that I have only just realised exists. Well, it's got to be seen to be believed. And I have a confession to make. I have an acquaintance from my school years that's involved in this business and he's involved at the very highest level. Good morning, Gerhard. Good morning, Will. Look, it's very good of you to have me up here to your Collins Street office. It's a magnificent office, uh, great views out over the Treasury Gardens. I think that's what they call them over there. It's a very secretive business. Yes, uh, it is. Uh, it's risky, but it's quite lucrative. I'm sure it is. Why do you want to talk to me about it? Have you developed a sense of guilt or remorse? No, I have no guilt or remorse whatsoever. I'm speaking on the basis that my identity be kept. That's important. There's no more to it than that, other than perhaps a high sense of pride in my work. I know you well, and at my age, it seems appropriate to... Uh, come clean, for want of better words, uh, in an anonymous sense, of course. I guess, uh, who else could you tell? Uh, that, that's correct. But surely this is a dangerous business. Do you feel a great sense of danger in the business that you're in? No, uh, none whatsoever. I have, uh, of course, ways of protecting myself. 
Well, I'm fascinated to learn more. I've known you for more than 45 years, and I was always led to believe that you were of northern Italian extraction, but that's not true, is it? <laughs> no. My, my family was actually of German background. My uh, beloved grandfather left Germany near the end of World War II, he travelled first to Uruguay, then to Paraguay, where he established extensive forestry interests. He also brought with him a large amount of art from Europe. What sort of art? Paintings, sculpture, that sort of thing. Mostly uh, 19th century impressionists. Most of it European, you know, uh, Dutch, French, Spanish, so on. He was a collector? In a manner of speaking, yes. Uh, can you give me a little more detail? No, I don't want to go into that right now. Yeah, perhaps we can return to that subject uh, later. Uh, I don't think so. No, that will not be necessary. I, I, I'll tell you uh, what I can, but perhaps not everything. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, yes, all right. I remember as a young child, my elderly grandfather, he was a very impressive man. He had established a vast fortune from forestry leases with the government of Paraguay. He was quite reclusive and he ran his business with an iron fist. He was very well connected and uh, my father, Irwin, went into the brewing business, establishing uh, two of the largest breweries in the Southern Hemisphere. In Paraguay? Yes, the Pilsen Brewery and also in Chile, they developed into huge businesses. My father was very successful, but a difficult man. He was hard on everyone, including my mother and I. He was protective of Opa. Uh, that's your grandfather, I take it? Correct. But you went to school here in Australia. That's when I first met you. I probably shouldn't mention names, but I know you attended an exclusive private school at Corio in, well, that's quite near Geelong, isn't it? Yes, um, that's correct. I travelled to and from Geelong to Chile. I spent much of my holidays in the company of my Uncle Irwin, my father's younger brother. We were very close. It was Uncle Irwin who introduced me to, to painting. Oh. After I finished school, I did a short stint at RMIT in Melbourne. Is it true that during your secondary schooling, one of your fellow students at that school was the future King of England, Prince Charles? Yes. Uh, <laughs> we were in the same year at school, but he was two years older than me. We became quite close, in fact, and still remain in touch, but only very occasionally these days. Extraordinary. And what about your uncle, Uncle Irwin? Was he an artist? In a manner of speaking, yes, he was. Uh, can you explain that a little more? Well, at the end of the war, there were many organisations entirely dedicated to the recovery of art that had uh, disappeared out of Europe during the war years. Can I surmise from that that your grandfather's art collection was stolen? Hmm. You should not believe everything that you read. Okay. There are so many stories, most are entirely untrue. Opa held honour in the highest order. No one could ever question his honour. He was a powerful man, but Germans were much misunderstood at that time. You haven't really answered my question. Well, I think I've answered you uh, as best I can. All right, it's uh, obviously a sensitive point, so uh, I think we should move on. But tell me about your uncle, that's Erwin, right? Oh, yes, it's a great pleasure. 
so fond of him. Erwin uh, went to France for his schooling. Uh, he then trained as a painter in Paris during the 1930s. He was my favourite, and we spent a great deal of time together. As it followed, significant paintings were occasionally returned to large national galleries and museums in Europe. Erwi was actually tasked with this by Upa, and uh, the reasons for this will become apparent. Was any of your grandfather's art returned? <laughs> in a manner of speaking, yes. Uh, important paintings were returned. Can you enlarge on this? I mean, why were they returned and, and how were they returned to Europe, to these galleries and museums? Well, over the period of time and post-war and what have you, there were considerable efforts made to uh, return, uh, shall we say, misappropriated or stolen artworks but in some cases copies were returned in place of originals mm. we became quite expert in creating these copies but by their return the pressure was taken off men like my grandfather so they were forgeries no object to that they're exact copies the most perfect the world has ever seen copies forgeries is there a difference of course there's a difference there are so many forgeries but copies exact copies these were masterpieces of equal importance to the originals i don't want to sound critical but i would have thought a forgery is a forgery uh, not in my eyes nothing can equal the value of an exact copy uh, an exact copy when you say that exact how exact are we talking i mean exact in every way i learned to source canvases and stretches of identical age there we taught me about sourcing pigments and brushes we traveled all over uh, europe to gather materials every brush stroke is like a fingerprint for a copy to be a true copy it must be exactly right the fingerprint must match exactly. But how could you fool the experts? Surely the most expert art valuers and forensic art investigators would have picked the copies? I don't understand how you provided the provenance for these works. What about the materials? Well, I'm not inclined to go into great detail <coughs> on, on, uh, on those points, but <laughs> it's for me to know. But perhaps I can tell you that I have sometimes paid a very high price at some of the world's most exclusive auction houses to obtain exactly the right stretcher and canvas. And what have you done with those? Well, these are from lesser-known artists, perhaps not so eagerly collected. The surface paint is cleaned off and the copies are made on these old canvases. They uh, are usually of identical age and supplied by the identical supplier to the original. Even the stretcher maker's stamps are true. They will stand any test. What about the paint? Surely an expert can pick new paint from old. Yes, uh, an expert can pick new paint, but this is not new paint. It is made from identical pigments and the media as the original and there are ways to age this for example well again i'm not going to give away uh, too many secrets but a painting from france in 1850 will have aged in a different way to any other painting different in every region and depending on how it was stored and exhibited my skills are in determining that process and replicating 
the aging process at a faster rate. In many ways, this lies at the heart of art copying. More so than the actual painting itself, would you say? No, but certainly of equal importance. These paintings must be exactly right down to the last brushstroke, and it must present as exactly the right age. Everything must be perfect. The original and the copy must be interchangeable. It seems extraordinary. Where can, where can we see some of these copies, for example? <laughs> well, I can tell you that there are several hanging in the Louvre in Paris. There is even one here in the National Gallery of Victoria. There are many more examples worldwide, some in private collections and some in museums. So you mean there are museums in the world, including our own NGV, that have fakes on their walls? Look, um, I caution you to stop uh, belittling my work. They are copies, replicas. No one can tell the difference. Uh, can you tell me which paintings? <laughs> no, why would I do that? The fact is that these paintings make people happy. They bring enjoyment. In many ways, I'm responsible for the stability of cultures. To expose any of it would only bring sadness, and that is not what I'm about. I've known you a long time. You've got a certain German arrogance in your attitude, but you don't feel bad about defrauding people? Well, I suppose the next thing you're going to say is that we Germans don't have a sense of humour. I think I've got a very good one. Uh, we're not defrauding anyone, really. These paintings are revered. People travel all over the world to see them. They're insured, sometimes for a fortune. Okay, I have a Prussian background. I'm trying to revere excellence. I pursue excellence. It's really hard for me to get my head around all of this. You know, it's a case of what a tangled web you weave, etc. But to produce one of these copies, it must take a terribly long time. How long do you spend on one of these things? Yes, well, you're right about that. Generally, a medium-sized oil painting may take six months to a year, and then a further year in the ageing process. Watercolour and... Uh, gouache i suppose you have to yeah it's a little with. quicker they uh, they're even exposed to the climate of the original village or city so that all traces of pollen etc collect in the paint as it dries well i'm just dumbfounded it's one of the most scandalous things ever that hasn't been exposed in in, in our short history have you made a great deal of money from this well suffice to say it it is a lucrative business we are a very small group worldwide uh, replication is known as black provenance uh, amongst, shall yeah. we say, my cronies. However, I'm not in it for the money. I'm, I'm very uh, comfortable, thanks to the business interests around the world. Uh, I don't need any more money. I'm in it because of the pride and the sense that I'm pursuing my destiny. I do not hesitate to state that I'm the best in the business. There are perhaps one or two others in the world of similar, perhaps lesser skill. Do you know each other? Like, do you go out to dinner or do you, you know, get together for a drink? We know of each other, but uh, no, we don't meet. Well, who commissions your work and how do you receive a commission for a copy? This has to be secure for you. How do you do that? Well, have you ever heard of the deep web? I have, but that's where people hire hitmen and trade in bitcoins and things like that, isn't it? Well, it could be part of it, but that's certainly not in our area. A business like this is conducted in the relative security of the deep web. Put it this way, um, those that need to find me can, but those that are looking for me 
will find me impossible to track. It's a delicate business, but exciting. I bet it is. Um, it sounds it certainly sounds exciting. Yeah, um, look, sorry, but your, I'll take this. Your phone's ringing. I'm afraid we have to finish there. All right. Okay, thank you for the time. I'm sorry to see you go. Yes, um, sir. Yeah, it's been fascinating to catch up again. Okay, then. Cheerio. Goodness me, that was something else. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. It's given me a lot to think about. So I'm probably going to head off to the NGV to have a closer look now at some of our famous Impressionist paintings. So why don't we leave it till next time? Back to you in the studio.